1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. (sighs) Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
2: What's up, my fabulous furry freak brothers? Before we start today's show, I want to go ahead and bring you a special, special way to start your day. As many of you know, I live in the Midwest here in the great state of Wisconsin, but I work East Coast hours, so my day has to start earlier than a lot of my compadres I work with over on the East Coast. So what does that mean? What that means is that I gotta go ahead and get my caffeine fixation taken care of throughout the day. Now, typically, when I wake up, I'm actually pretty alert, so I don't need the jolt of energy that a lot of people Uh, required to basically function as normal members of society. But it is around the middle of the day, especially as I'm like in that third quarter crunch between like 1 and 4 p.m., that's when I need something. So as many of you know, I've been on a weight loss journey, and part of that has been cutting out sugary energy drinks. So I've had to put down the bangs, had to go ahead and send out the monsters to people that will drink them. Can't touch it. It's full of crap. However, just a nice hot cup of coffee or a nice coffee with a half and half that my wife will go ahead and prepare for me and bring over to go ahead and get me through the day and make sure that I'm still a tolerable person to live with. Um, that has become more crucial. So imagine how happy I was when our friends over at Fox & Sons went ahead, set up their subscription service. So you go ahead and set it up and they will go ahead and deliver you a bag every month. Or you can just go ahead and make some one-time purchases. Either way, we've got something awesome for you. We're issuing, see, because we got to tie the branding into all language. We are issuing a decree. Thanks to our friends at Fox and Sons, fifteen percent off any order with special code Second Print Pod when you make a purchase of twenty five dollars or above. See, they're just men of the people like me. S- Second Print Pod to get fifteen percent off every order of twenty five bucks or more. You're welcome. You're welcome. Fox and Sons is spelled F O X N S O N. Fox and Sons. Foxandsons.com. Use special code Second Pod for 15% off any order when you make an order of 25 buckaroos or more. See? They're men of the people, just like me. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now a dream.
3: 2nd Fit Comics Podcast, starring Mark Clare and Wimso Martinez.
2: You're all going to have to go ahead and apologize to me. That's right. I am expecting some deep and sincere sorries all across the interwebs especially over at Twitter at heyremso H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O expecting your apologies sent to me because I don't actually think I have a shitty taste in movies obscure perhaps eccentric I can live with that am I sometimes a little inconsistent because no one ever forgets my rating Of Wonder Woman 1984 despite the fact that I was dealing with quarantine mania and everything else not having been to a theater not having watched a new movie like many of us I was just excited to see Gal Gadot on screen in January or was it December of 2020 yeah it was December of 2020 because it came out on Christmas yeah I need some I need some I need some sorries because I'm gonna go ahead and go after a film that uh (laughs) I forced myself to watch. And I I do truly mean force myself to watch. Welcome back to the Second Print Comics podcast. It is me, the remarkable Remzo Martinez, man of the people. Just me flying solo today while Florida man Mark does Florida man things. Um, you, You see those videos of people ever like fighting alligators. I saw one where this one alligator was going after. I think it was it was going after a man's dog. And he comes out with a with a flip flop, not like a real sandal, like you know, one that you would wear around your house and stuff like that. And he beats the alligator, and then the alligator just goes running off back into this swamp that it's in. Um, I also saw another one. It looks like something straight out of South Park. This this one guy, it was during the hurricanes in Florida, where this alligator's up on this guy's fucking. Um, driveway and what does he do <laughs> what does he do to i don't know if he's trying to get rid of it or if he's trying to actually abduct this this alligator but he flips his his large trash can on its side and And then he's pushing it towards the alligator. And I think the gator is like, shit, I'm going to become deep fried gator bites if this guy doesn't get away from me. The alligator is backing up from the trash can. And it's like, you know, hissing and snarling at him. And the guy's just like, come here, Mr. Gator, 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 Gator. Sometimes when Mark says he has Florida man things, that's what I imagine. I imagine him just like, all right, come on, we need a new mascot. For the Mark Claire show, Mr. Alligator, this is going to be awesome. And, um, you know, then, then I ask him what he's doing, and it's usually something not alligator related. So then, like, all my potential scenarios are just worthless at that point. But you want to know what else is worthless? Christ on a bike. We're talking a little bit about a lot of things today. We're going to go ahead and start off with... Uh, Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, which is now streaming on Max. I want to call it HBO Max, but um, by the fact that I had to download an entirely new app and remember my Max passwords and everything, my iTunes passwords and everything from my Apple TV, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty solid with Max now dropping the HBO. So Shazam, Fury of the Gods is streaming on Max. Um, we're going to go ahead and a little little bit and talk about the stack of books i got i have not been as excited to read a stack of comic books in a very long time because for listeners of the spc pop segments you know that while we've had some home runs here and there compared to prior years uh 2023 seems to be like what we've been dealing with over the last year and a half where we have like a couple of good titles and then we've got a lot of shit in between well i went uh, during this Memorial Day weekend, and I actually bought myself a hefty, hefty stack of comic books just for me because the only time I really buy comics now is for you guys who are in the uh, Patreon at our $25 uh, Epic Crossover level. Mark and I will go ahead and hand-select hardcover graphic novels to send to you. So typically when I'm going and buying graphic novels for you guys, I will go ahead and you know wander around the aisles and the spinner racks and grab myself some stuff. But this time I went just for me. And I caught some really good shit. Like, I I don't dislike a single comic book in the pile I got. So I'll go ahead and run through those titles in a bit. And then, then I want to give you a treat. You like James Cameron? You you like Spider-Man? Did you know that in the early 90s, James Cameron wrote a Spider-Man script? That's right. And we're going to go in a deep freaking rabbit hole of some prime nerdum and a little bit. So we've got all those things and more. Let's go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off. As many of you longtime listeners will know, I am a fan of the first Shazam! I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it's always <laughs> cool when it does. Excuse me while I move some stuff around so my stack of books doesn't completely fall off of my table here. I, I like the first Shazam because I feel like it captures... Um, The funny-ish, you know, child adventure-isms that you would get with movies like The Goonies and Flight of the Condor and stuff like that, you know, um, from like that 1980s era. It was very much a a kid's movie, but I, I also think that it qualifies as a Christmas movie, so I typically watch it around Christmas. Is it the best? No. Is it horrible? No. I think the first Shazam hit a lot of high notes. It, it does jar some people who were very accustomed to the Zack Snyder era. And while it does uh, stick to the canon of the Snyder era of DC films, um, you know, it, it does its own thing. It was It was refreshing for a period. I will say that. So I was expecting that to be in this movie, and while I would definitely say that they could broadly describe it as how I just did a moment ago, it's it's far more for children. And uh, let, let's go ahead and just also address the giant elephant in the room. Um, this, this film really essentially serves zero purpose to the current DCEU, and it serves an unknown purpose, but what I will... Uh, predict now will be a, un, you know, a kind of a ignored purpose given uh James Gunn's DC universe future. So um, Black Adam killed this movie's momentum. That's just it. So much so that that's not even an opinion of mine. Zachary Levi said that uh, during premiere week, when the box office numbers came in from opening weekend and they were shit. Like we are talking like they are in the dumpster. They are a steaming pile of disappointment, which is not, I I didn't actually think that it would do so poorly because traditionally, and whether you like the DCEU films or not, other than Birds of Prey, all of the DCEU films that have come out since Man of Steel have always overperformed um than expected. They have always made a profit. And believe it or not, while they might score lower compared to some MCU movies, they have scored some... I mean, sorry, they have earned more money than a good chunk of them. Uh, the Ant-Man films, Captain Marvel, some, some of those they have outperformed them in the box office. Especially Batman vs Superman made a ton of money. People could say what they want about the ratings, but it did very well and it did outperform a good chunk of the Marvel movies that did come out that year as well financially. So imagine my surprise when Shazam 2 is basically called like the worst of the DCEU films. I would still probably say that that title Belongs to um, the first Suicide Squad film. I don't think it was horrible, but it definitely is a film with its wings clipped. It underperformed rating wise pretty severely, drastically lower than the first Shazam, which you typically get when it comes to sequels. But we're talking like big difference. And money wise, it has. I don't think it has made. I don't think it'll make back its budget. I don't think it did. Um, I don't want to look at the numbers and do live research because they make me cry, but I can't, I I can't make excuses because I didn't even go see this movie in theaters. No. Instead, my wife and I waited a little bit, and then we went to go see Super Mario Brothers, which is vastly superior to this movie, (laughs) but Shazam 2 uh, takes place pretty much a, a couple years after the first Shazam. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you because I tried doing it in the second Pro Comics fan zone where our patrons like to hang out with us on Facebook and they start bitching, like, I'm going to watch it with my son this weekend. That's right. I'm talking to you, Justin. I can't spoil a movie for you that's already streaming on HBO Max. I'm sorry, Max, because they're branding fixation. So uh, I watched it and it's just it just feels weird. One, this is still technically supposed to take place in the world of Black Adam. Think about that. Think about that. This is supposed to take place in the world of Black Adam. And despite what the original intentions of, um, you know, the, the, the AT&T era of Warner Brothers and DC, despite um, The Rock's, you know, promises to change the hierarchy of power in the EU. remember that this was still pretty much... A product of that it still has Walter Hamada's fingerprints all over that so despite the fact that Dwayne Johnson completely like hated hated the Shazam character and wanted the future of his his franchise and the rest of the DCU basically lead up to a fight between him and uh, Henry Cavill's Superman this is still technically supposed to take place in that and it just feels it feels weird they definitely doubled down on this being a kid's movie And I think it's kind of weird because in in opening weekend, they tried to market it as bring your kids. It wasn't this is for D.C. uh, EU fans. This isn't for whatever. It's like this is for kids. And they tried to really paint it as that because it it really, it really is. And um, I'm not saying that in a bad way. Like Super Mario Brothers is definitely a kid's movie. But this felt more, this felt more like a Disney movie. I mean it, it felt more like it felt more like a direct to TV movie at times. Like, you know, budget budget-wise CGI-wise like the CGI and everything is fine, but like storytelling and the way that they do certain things, it just feels like a 90s direct to TV superhero movie and that that's not good. Uh, the the dialogue throughout the film is is pretty bad. The the subplots kind of meander around and Ultimately, like I, I actually st- I start watching this like on a Saturday, and I got through like thirty minutes, and I had to stop. And I, then yesterday, as I am going through my comics, I you know was having some nostalgia, nostalgia creeps coming in, and I was like, you know, what I used to do as a kid and a teenager, I used to turn on a superhero movie in the background, I used to read my comics, and then I got a milkshake afterwards. So it was a, it was a good day for me to feel like teenage remzo again. Yeah, that's right. The weight loss thing took a took a cheat day, but anyway, it was just. It just was weird. And some people were like, well, it's Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu's fault. No, because we've had really good female villains. I think the the best one I could say is from the MCU. It's, it's Hera in Thor Ragnarok. She was a formidable, creepy, scary villain who was really daunting. And I think they wanted to kind of set up the Daughters of Atlas that way. Um, Lucy Liu is still banging. Like she still got. I don't know how old she is, but I hope that maybe Marvel will snatch her up and put her in another role because that that lady is just. I've I've always been a Lucy Liu fan. Helen Mirren was weird for me. I don't I don't see I, I don't see why that made sense other than the fact that they thought that superhero fans and comic book fans would want to see Helen Mirren as a daughter of Atlas. That didn't didn't really do it for me. The villains were just. It it was very it was very two D cut and paste. Um, despite how much I, I am a fan of Lucy Liu. There were some parts where you could just really tell she's just phoning it in. She's such she's a good actress. I don't know why she just underperformed in this film. And it wasn't well maybe it was how the character written. No, you're gonna see her like deliver some lines and it's just like lady, just stop. Just stop and say you wanted the money and I hope you got paid in advance. So the film just does not feel great and then this is where you start to see the rumors of the last minute reshoots really come into play and who do we have to thank for that we have zachary levi for telling us one the wonder woman edition that's right i'm spoiling it justin sorry um the the wonder woman edition at the very end of the movie that basically changes up the whole like momentum of the film that just felt so jarring, and I was sitting down with my wife as we were watching it, and I I, I told her it's like I don't know whether I should feel really happy that I get to, that we get to see Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman in a DCEU film once again because the last time they showed any semblance of her was in Peacemaker season one, but just like uh, just like Affleck and uh, you know Henry Superman, you only see like their silhouettes, you don't see their faces because it's been pretty pretty apparent that they axed the actors when James Gunn came in so for them to go ahead and bring in gal gadot's wonder woman to basically bring billy back to life um one that was cool to see her but two, that it just you, you bring her you bring in wonder woman at the very end of a movie to suddenly do this big thing that brings the hero back and then you just send her off it's like I said to her, it's like, I'm not sure whether I'm excited to have seen Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman or the fact that they use this as her last appearance as the character on screen. That was just bullshit. That was bullshit. Um, It just, it feels like something that was crammed in last minute. Uh, People complained about certain rewrite moments from Black Adam and the inconsistencies. This was worse than any of those criticisms. It just felt off. It was off. Um. And then, then there's, there's a, there's those additional end credit scenes. There's the one of Savannah and, um, the magic worm motherfucker. I forget his name, uh, because they had to go ahead and, you know, try and salvage some sequel bait that was given in the Easter I get the end credits of the first Shazam movie. It's, it's, I watched online. I didn't watch it on my. I watched it online when the movie came out in theaters, and I was a little unimpressed. It was a little funny, but it's just it's just one of those things where it's like a dead end. It's like watching Sinestro at the end credit scenes of Green Lantern. You just know that after that movie came out and they said no sequel, that it doesn't matter, and this this doesn't matter either. And I think it's funny that it still has to do with um, Mark Strong, who played both Sinestro in the Green Lantern film and Doctor Savannah. In the, Sh- in the Shazam films, uh, that doesn't deliver. But then there's the big one, the one that was so big that uh, I'm surprised Zachary Levi didn't get slapped on the hand when he said so. But remember the Justice Society, the badasses that really kept uh, Black Adam as a movie going and were like straight up the best parts of that film, if you ask me? Yeah, they were supposed to appear in the first end credit scene, but instead, who do we get? We get Amelia Harcourt, a.k.a. James Gunn's James wife, and then we have um, Derek, who I did the Peacemaker reviews with on Patreon, knows how to say his name. I don't, I, I don't know, like Diebeard. That was his nickname that Peacemaker gave him, Dyebeard. You have, you have Dyebeard and you have James Gunn's wife. Well, they were supposed to be the Justice Society because, in spoilers, sorry people, um, Shazam is supposed to get recruited into the Justice Society. So according to Zachary Levi... They filmed the scene. Uh, Hawkman was there. I think Adam Smasher and uh, Red Tornado were going to be there, and they recruit him. It was going to look awesome. And they, you know, that was his invitation to the Justice Society because the Justice Society and James Gunn has given no no indication that we're ever going to see those characters, those actors, that Justice Society ever again in his DCU. That was part of the Walter Hamada Dwayne Johnson era. Uh, The Rock apparently pulled him because The Rock hates Shazam. (laughs) I don't know why he decided to just continue to do this, but everything makes The Rock look worse. So The Rock hates Shazam. They film that scene. The Rock and Walter Hamada say, take it out. Go ahead and throw in James Gunn's wife and throw in Dyebeard and um, have them invite Shazam into the Justice Society, which... That whole scene is just so fucking like you could tell it was just like taped together. Like, you know, it's like if you drop a vase and then you try and put it together with like super glue, but you get the pieces all wrong. That's how it felt. And then he makes these jokes about like, you know, there being two justice groups, but having nothing to do with each other. And he wants to join the one with Wonder Woman. And then as he's coming up with like new names for the Justice Society, he calls it. He calls it, he's like, uh, you know, the, the Code Society, the What Society, the Authority Society. Obviously, James Gunn had something to do with that because James Gunn's big passion project rather than Superman Legacy for his DCU is the Authority movie. So obviously his wife, two characters from Peacemaker who were obviously coming back in the Waller series and Peacemaker season two because everything else has to get scrapped except the shit that James Gunn worked on. Um, they make the, he makes the authority joke and at the end, he's like, Oh, what about the Avengers society? That sounds cool. And like maybe 10 years ago, that would have been funny, but it, it just shows that DC and as much as I love the DC films, as much as I love the DC characters, and I am a DC guy first, almost exclusively these days, um, it, if it just feeds into the stigma that DC is always following behind, um, what what Marvel is doing. You saw this in the super in the League of Super Pets movie uh, last year, in which they make uh, they make Iron Man jokes and they make Captain America jokes in the movie, and it's like you would never get this out of Marvel. They made one DC joke in Eternals, but luckily no one really gave a fuck about that movie, so it didn't it didn't fly when the one kid calls Icarus Superman. But when DC, when Marvel does it, it's quippy. When DC does it, it's creepy. So to have, you know, Shazam, you know, make a, try and make a Marvel joke, it's just another thing where it's just like, you know, the humor doesn't even land. The humor won't, the humor won't land. Much like how Marvel has equipped their audiences to expect their tone between serious and humorous. I, I watched that scene and it was just so fucking weird. So I, I have to. If I had to give this film an impromptu rating, and mind you, a week ago I saw, or two weeks ago I saw, freaking Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three in theaters. I have been so tempted, so tempted to take my wife to go see it a third time. Except I want to take her to the drive-in next week to go see Cocaine Bear. And then what do we have the week after that? We have. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and what do we have a week after that? We have The Flash. I'm not made of money, people. I'm not, unless you want to go ahead and, you know, upgrade your level on Patreon or go ahead and maybe join Patreon for as little as $5 a month. What I'm saying is, if you want me to go actually watch the stuff and give you my thoughts and everything else and and maybe, you know, treat myself a little bit and, you know, help Mark buy his alligator insurance when the time comes when he's inevitably uh, bitten and dragged into a pond, and I have to do this by myself, Go ahead and check us out on patreon.com/slash second print pod. So my impromptu Shazam Fury of the Gods review. I am giving this movie a four out of ten. I think this is the least rated film that I have ever rated in any of the films that uh, I have I have done. I will say that this is the worst of the DC EU movies simply because of just how it's how it is. I would rather watch Suicide Squad. I would rather watch Suicide Squad again. Um, this just doesn't. This just doesn't help itself. And I mean, I like Zachary Levi. I like the cast. Like, I think the cast is good. I think the CGI is good. I can even get along with the idea of Helen Mirren being a being a bad guy. And you know, I love Lucy Lou. But like, come on! Like, this movie was just. I I get that maybe the the impact of Shazam and the announcements from James Gunn trying to reroute this and everything into his new DCU because apparently it's canon still because he was like, well, Shazam's doing its own thing. Basically saying, I want to leave it there because I I can't absolutely scrap it because it's still coming out in theaters, but you guys can pretty much assume that I'm not doing shit with it. This movie had all of its wind taken out of its sails. I haven't felt this dismayed since uh, Green Lantern, which you know, it's just, like, there was potential there for a good sequel, whether the first movie was bad or not, which, in retrospect, it really was, it just, it just feels weird, and I feel bad for Mark Strong, that guy is a brilliant actor, I love him as Merlin in the, in Kingsman, but for fuck's sake, like, let this guy truly be a sequel villain, like, you can't keep doing this shit to Mark Strong, and Zachary Levi, Zachary Levi had like a fucking mental breakdown. I was talking to you know, a friend of the show, Caleb Franz on, uh, on Instagram. And we were texting each other back and forth with all the Shazam news. And when we saw the justice society stuff and everything else, he was just like, you know, I, I want to go see it because I want to support him. Even token uncle Brody, um, even him for fans that love him know that he loves Shazam. He loves Captain Marvel and everything. And even he couldn't take himself to go see this movie. So what does it say when right there you got Caleb Franz, you got Token Uncle Brody, and you got myself. And I, I know that Mark did not watch this movie either. The four people on this show you hear more from anywhere else will go and see every comic book movie known to man did not go see Shazam! Fury of the Gods. It's a sad day. It's a sad day. And I really do think that if uh, if a lot of those announcements, if a lot of the shit going on with Black Adam hadn't happened, then this probably would have done better, uh, not just financially, but maybe we would have given them a pass to certain things. But because of all the Black Adam controversies, because of all the stuff going on with James Gunn and Peter Safran uh, at DC Studios... This this movie was just it, it was aborted. It was basically taken to Planned Parenthood, and they said, "Go ahead and just you know snip, snip, just like take care of it." Like this was this was an aborted movie, and it feels really weird, especially knowing how, how uh, you know what happened to Batgirl and everything else. And now you've got the Arrowverse gone. You've got all the. Um, you know, DC app era shows like Titans and Doom Patrol gone. I don't know what they're doing with Harley Quinn. It's just like, everything is just like, if you liked it, say bye. And, uh, you know, luckily the flash is coming out soon and maybe, maybe that will go ahead and, you know, cleanse our palates, but it's going to have to, every time more stuff comes out, it's just like flash better be the fucking bomb. Because if it's not like they're, they're, fucked. And you could say goodbye to Creature Commandos, James Gunn, because, man, this movie better be fucking good. But, you know, I I loved Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and that's probably that is the best MCU film, in my opinion, since Endgame. Uh, I think it surpasses even No Way Home in many ways. Uh, So, I mean, it kind of reminded me once again, it's like, you know, James Gunn does have an understanding. James Gunn did make hard decisions as much as I might not like some of them, I have to trust that he's going to treat the IP and everything well because he's a fan like us. And, uh, you know, he can either be the destroyer of a universe or the savior of a universe. But, man, it keeps me teeter-tottering. And when I saw this film, it was just like, God, like I know this isn't his movie, but he made sure to fucking bury it as much as he could. Okay. Whew. That was a lot right there. Moving on. I got a stack. A giant fat stack. $40 does not give me a giant fat stack like it used to when I was a teenager. Jesus Christ. um, I I wanted to go ahead, and I was looking for a couple of things. One, I wanted to catch up on Superman Lost. For those that listened to, I think, the last pop episode that Mark and I did, I didn't realize how far behind I was. Two more issues have come out. I was a pretty big fan of the uh, first issue of Superman Lost. I was like, okay, I think something is going on here. Issue two was a bit... Mm, I don't know. Issue two was mid, okay. Let's let's say that. Issue three, holy shit! Let me tell you this, and I'm not gonna spoil this. I actually think you guys should go get the first three issues of Superman Lost while they're out on on stands right now, and you should you should read issue one and two pretty fast because issue three has something that is just so fucking bizarre and so freaking funny and cool and crazy at the same time, I can probably say, and this is, mind you, this is coming within a month of the Batman, you know, Legacy 900 issue, Batman 135, I think, Um, I have it right in front of me, what's the number, because this was Mark's big book, Uh, yeah, 135, Batman 135, which is their Legacy 900 issue of Batman, um, with the Adam West Batman and all the other Batmans of the multiverse turning into, you know, their 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 own Zener Ers, which is pretty cool, and the Bat Shark repellent. Okay, that was wild, okay. And I think that is a top contender for one of the craziest, kookiest scenes in a comic within the year. I think I have it beat. <laughs> and I wasn't even intending on that. I didn't even know we were competing. Um, Superman Lost issue three has a scene. Where Superman is attempting to find a way to find a planet, a galaxy of one sun, so that way he knows that he's returning to the Milky Way, he comes across, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you, but you gotta, you gotta read it because the rest of the issue is just freaking wild. He comes across cosmic space dolphins. That's right, cosmic space dolphins, dolphins who can travel at light speed and they can read minds. It is one of the single funniest things ever and I never expected anything like this in a Superman comic, nonetheless. This is so... And it delivers. It delivers. And I think we're going to see them for a few more issues. It delivers. You got to go pick up Superman Lost Issue 3. I will say right now that three issues in, Superman Lost is my favorite title of 2023. It's going to be a high bar, because the first issue is pretty good. Second issue kind of maintained that. But third issue, holy shit. This is, you bring in Space Dolphins, and then you do what they do next. Once he meets them and befriends them, things go a little south. I am all in for the series. It's 10 issues, so that means there's seven months left of this I'm already gonna go ahead and say it. Superman Lost is my favorite title of 2023. So that was uh, that. That was a couple I got. So I got issue two. and I got issue three. Um, Greg Priest and uh, Pagulon or P- Pag-Ulan. Um I, I don't mean to fuck up names. I just I'm, I'm just an illiterate. Um, story and artwork. Everything is just so good in this. So good. Go go ahead and pick yourself up, Superman lost if you just want to see it and then maybe go back and collect the prior issues if you can just for the space dolphins it's worth it it's worth it uh the other one was definitely a nostalgia grab uh i have not picked up a spider-man book in a very long time but given you know a lot of the cool scenes from the spider-man 2 game and um the fact that i am super excited for across the spider-verse to come out in a couple of weeks I was pleasantly surprised, I'm surprised that Marvel isn't pushing this out more, that they actually have a Spider-Man 2099 limited series out. It's a five-issue limited series called Spider-Man 2099 Dark Genesis. Now, what they've been doing for the 2099 books, I think for the past five years, is they've actually had a couple of interconnecting limited series. There was Alpha and Omega, and they all kind of focus on... um, On Spider-Man 2099, but they're still canon to the original 2099 universe that was set up in the 90s uh, that we've seen a little bit pop up through the 2000s. But this is really it continuing. And they had like a time crisis event like 10 years ago. Um, Basically, if you're a fan of the 2099 universe, this is still in canon with that. It's still the same one. And uh, this... You know, they, they've been doing these limited series every once in a while. They are still technically connected. They did some one-shots for Venom and for Punisher, and those are pretty cool. Those are more like side story vignettes. But this is really the most recent addition to it. And what you see is you see um you, you get the return of Ghost Rider 2099. They have a Spider Woman 2099. I didn't know who she was. I haven't really been collecting a lot of these limited series, but I saw her in here and she's pretty cool. They introduce Blade. That's right, 2099 Blade. And now they've got 2099 Carnage. This is a good fucking book. And this is probably what I'll say the one Marvel book that a couple issues in, I have no criticisms of. The art is fantastic. The story is fantastic. The pace of everything feels like old school Marvel, not just, you know, old school 2099 style stuff. You got plenty of that in there. If the whole Alchemex and the Nueva York. Situation, but this feels freaking cool. This makes me really remember why I liked Miguel O'Hara as the future Spider-Man so much uh, as, a, as a 90s kid growing up and reading these books. So if you want a Spider-Man book, especially if you want something for yourself, being an older reader, um, and you want some of that Spider-Man classic features but with something a little different if you weren't never necessarily a Spider-Man 2099 fan, Pick this up. Uh, Paul over in the second comic fan zone said that he was thinking of picking this up the last time he went to his local comic book shop and he was waiting for my opinion. So guess what, Paul? I love it. I'm going to go ahead and pick up the last couple of issues of it because this is a good fucking series. And I had no clue it was out. It's barely been mentioned in solicitations. It gets no attention. Um, There were a lot of copies left at my store, which is why I was able to get uh, issues one through three already so like this is a sleeper this is definitely a sleeper hit is fun and if your kid if you're gonna take your kid to go see across the spider-verse and they're gonna turn into Miguel O'Hara fans because Miguel O'Hara is fucking cool um, this is a series that's appropriate for them I will I will warn you though is that unlike in that movie you're gonna see some pretty graphic violence in this this carries that 90s 2099 violence that this specific series was known for Uh, Miguel O'Hara has always been a more violent spider-man that's just who the character is, and there's a scene where 2099 Carnage does some shit that you there, There's no inferring what's happening; they're showing you what he's doing. It is it is graphic. So maybe if you if you if you're a parent and you don't want to see graphic violence, maybe reconsider this one. Maybe take a look at yourself before you buy it for junior, but for yourself, get Spider-Man 2099 Dark Genesis. I went ahead and picked up a few of the variant covers. I was fucking blown away. Um, third on the stack, I got that Spider-Man. I don't know. I got that Batman 135, Legacy 900. This is the first Batman book I've bought um, in months because I was away and everything else. I'm probably going to get the, the failsafe safe um, collection and a graphic novel later, but I felt like this one I had to go ahead and get. Um, it is as good as Mark said it was a couple weeks ago. Definitely happy I bought that. It was worth the the price of admission. So it's a it's a more expensive book. Um, this was like a fourth of the cost of my entire stack. So yeah. Uh, now now onto some books that because I've I've also been more of like a horror mood. I love my horror comics. You know, um, they've got an Elvira <laughs> series out from Dynamite: Elvira in Monsterland. And, you know, you probably know Elvira from, you know, her her movies and her uh, her lasting impact in pop culture, Uh, Cassandra McFarlane or whatever her name is, Uh, Elvira, you know, big hair, big boobs, satire of every horror movie ever made. This movie, this book basically takes on the whole multiverse trope. Basically, what's happening is. and and apparently there was a limited series leading up to Elvira and Monsterlands, but basically what happened is the original Dracula, like the quote-unquote real Dracula, wants to form a league of Draculas, but there are no other Draculas. However, he has somehow stolen this item that can make him travel inside of movies. So you see him recruiting... All the other cinema Draculas and this, like, time, space, you know, men in black type organization that Elvira has worked with in the comics in the past needs Elvira to go and stop Dracula from recruiting all these other uh, Draculas. And we're talking the uh, Bellar Artucci, Um, original OG Dracula. We're talking about, um, you know, Count Dooku Dracula. I forget the actor's name, Peter. uh, um, Yeah, I think he had the Peter Cushing. I I don't think Peter Cushing was him. Anyway, every actor who has been Dracula, and I am even talking fucking Blackula, is in this book. Uh, You have Gary Oldman's (laughs) Dracula from the Keanu Reeves one in the 90s. He's in here. Every cinema Dracula, every one, is attempted to be recruited by him, and Elvira has to stop him from doing that. And then at the end of this first issue, and this, this is the selling point, point. And, and I want to preface with um, every, every time they go into a different movie, they take the style of the movie. So kind of like what they did that Batman 900, where when he goes into the Batman animated series universe or the Dark Knight Returns universe or the Kingdom Come or Batman Beyond, they adapt to the style of the, of the genre. They do the exact same thing here. So some are black and white, some are uh, you know some are in color, but it's you know they they take the directorial style of it. the The last Dracula they try and recruit in this issue is the Count from Sesame Street. So Elvira and Dracula turn into Muppets. <laughs> so you have this scary, evil OG Dracula who looks scary, but then he's like a smiling Muppet, and then you've got Elvira who's an Elvira Muppet with giant tits, and they're all arguing over the Count from freaking Sesame Street. And it is hilarious. It is so freaking funny that even if you'd never think that you'd pick up an Elvira comic book, I'm telling you, Elvira and Monsterland is something I'm going to be collecting through the summer. It is just too fucking funny. It's hilarious. And if you're a cinephile like me, uh, you're, you're going to appreciate all of it. Even if you don't remember actors' names as well, <laughs> and now the last one in my stack, this one caught me off guard. This is from What Not Publishing. I have never heard of What Not Publishing in my life, but I think now they might be my new best friends because they have teamed up, much like you had. Um, you know, Anthony Bourdain did a comic book when he was alive. Keanu Reeves, you know, wrote and starred in Berserker. Wesley Snipes, the OG Blade. One of the coolest action heroes of his era is not only writing, but he's also starring in a comic book where he fights satanic aliens. It's called The Exiled, written and starring Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes is a character in this book playing another character. Much like Keanu Reeves was Berserker, Wesley Snipes is the main character of this book. And let me tell you, it is late 80s, early 90s. Horror action! You got badass babes. You got big guns. You've got giant villains, giant axes, lots of blood, lots of ass kicking. I mentioned big guns. This is a freaking awesome book. It's like it's like watching an action movie. And the cover I got, I, I got, I got two of the same issue. I didn't realize it because one was a variant cover, and I was just like, I want all of this stuff. Where they're up to issue three. Uh, one is a standard cover of this giant bad guy with this, like, demon sorceress chick who's wearing a bikini. I'm actually going to mail this out to somebody um, at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mail out um, Eric, Eric if you're listening, producer Eric, who's one of our uh, Kirby Club-level patrons. The next time I mail out a, a graphic novel for you, I'm going to be giving you um, the entire uh, Superman Space Age limited series in addition to your mystery graphic novel. But uh, one of you, the next time I fulfill books, um, will be getting this issue three of the Exiled. You'll be getting the standard cover. While I am keeping this, like, Wesley Snipes, it looks like Terminator. It kind of looks like Cobra with Sylvester uh, Stallone-type cover. It's a variant. That's what caught me. I mean, Wesley Snipes writing and starring in a comic book. That is all the Wesley Snipes goodness you want. Like, it it is fucking awesome. So... I have. I am very happy. I'm gonna read through this entire stack again today. At some point, uh, I was very happy with it. So that's my stack. Hope maybe some of you will go out and grab some books if you've been worried that there's nothing but trash out right now. Currently, I don't blame you. But what I can tell you is uh, this was this this was a this was a th- this was a fresh you know breath of fresh air and a giant fart. This was a a spring in the desert. It was was awesome. Now, lastly, I want to go ahead and feed you some nerd history, some obscure nerd history as we wrap up today's SPC pop. That's right. I'm going to read you an article from Den of Geek covering James Cameron's Spider-Man movie we never saw. That's the article. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes today. Uh, I've known about this for a while. I've read the script, but it started popping up recently, especially with the Spider-Verse stuff. Somebody joked in one of the forums I'm part of that maybe we'll see Spider-Man Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I don't know if we'll see that, but um, just sit back, relax. I'm just going to go ahead and read this and uh, provide you my thoughts. Den of Geek brings you James Cameron's Spider-Man movie we never saw. James Cameron was all set to make his version of Spider-Man in the mid-'90s. So what happened? James Cameron's Spider-Man, kind of has a nice ring to it, don't you think? Well, unlike fictional James Cameron's Aquaman, of which only a few fleeting seconds exist in a universe of long defunct HBO se- of the long defunct HBO series Entourage, I thought it was Martin Scorsese's uh, no, I thought it was Martin Scorsese's Aquaman in the show um, in the show Entourage, in which, in, in which Vince is supposed to play Aquaman and. Mandy Moore was supposed to play um, uh, Mara or whatever whatever she is because no one really cares, yeah. If you're an Entourage fan, you get that. If you have no clue what Entourage is, you're, you never watched it. I'm sorry, that's going to be over your head. <laughs> um, but like so many superhero and comics-based projects during that time, a relative dark ages for the genre, uh, Cameron's vision for the web-slinging high school student never swung into theaters. Almost all of it was down to legal issues surrounding the rights to Spider-Man, which kept him off the screen for years. But a glance through the scriptment that Cameron worked up, a detailed treatment outlining the story, characters, and even passages of dialogue, indicates that Cameron's conception of the character and his mythos was very faithful in its own way. He did, however, incorporate a few bold changes to both Spider-Man himself and some iconic villains that would have divided some fans. Some of those changes ultimately still did divide fans, even if Cameron never got to be the one to implement them on the big screen. Quote, I wanted to make something that was kind of gritty, that had kind of a gritty reality to it, Cameron Cameron told Screen Crush in a recent interview. Superheroes in general always come off as kind and fanciful to me, and I wanted to do something that would have been more in vain of Terminator and Aliens that you buy into the reality of it right away. I wanted to ground it in reality and ground it in universal in a universal human experience. I think it would have been a fun film to make. Here's the story of James Cameron's Spider-Man and why we never saw it. Part 1. The canon era films. Oh, remember those guys? Yeah, no you don't. No you don't. Um, with the exception of Tim Burton's two Batman films, the 80s and early 90s were bleak for superhero cinema. The once-celebrated Superman series starring Christopher Reeves had crashed and burned with both Superman 3 in 1983 and the unwatchable Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and little else was happening. Two cheapo attempts at Marvel movies, Captain America in 1991 and Fantastic Four in 1994, were never released. Well... That's not necessarily true because Captain America, that movie would be, I think it was direct to VHS. Fantastic Four was never released. You can go ahead and watch the unreleased Fantastic Four film on YouTube in full um, right now, right now, Uh, while movies revolving around characters outside of DC and Marvel, like The Rocketeer in 1991 and The Shadow in 94 quickly vanished from the box office. Although legendary B-movie producer Roger Corman had briefly held the film option for Spider-Man, it was picked up in 1985 by Canon Films, the exploitation factory that had actually bankrolled Superman 4. Why did Marvel sell the rights to Canon? Um... Why did, why did they do it? You, you want to know why? You want to know why, folks? Because it's it's sad. According to the book Stan Lee and the Rise and Fall of the American Comic Book by Jordan Raphael and Tom Spurgeon via Gizmodo, Marvel's film agents at the time, Don Kapiloff, couldn't sell Spider-Man anywhere else. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine all the money on the table? Um I would never have gone to canon as a first choice, he recalled, he being Stanley. I went to them after I uh, couldn't get Captain America or Spider-Man sold. Nevertheless, canon heads uh, uh, Menahem Golan and Yaram Globus set, the, those are some names right there, uh, set about developing a Spider-Man movie over the next five years. The problem was Golan and Globus apparently mistook Spider-Man for something else along the lines of a monster. How the fuck do you do that? He's an American icon, and you, how do you not know Spider-Man? There are kids in sub-Saharan Africa who know Spider-Man. Come on. Um, and the first script they commissioned by Outer Limits creator Leslie Stevens had a scientist turning Peter Parker into a literal, into literally a human spider, asking him to join a new race of human mutants. Director Joseph Zito, one of the filmmakers picked for the project by the producers, told the Los Angeles Times in 2002 that Golan and Globus didn't really know what Spider-Man was. They thought it was like Wolfman. Apparently, they really did think that they were making a horror movie since another direct, potential directing choice was Texas Chainsaw Massacre creator uh, Toby Hooper. Even so, the producers budgeted the picture at $20 million, a huge cost at the time for any studio, let alone a quickie shop like Canon and began burning through a succession of screenplay, screenplays by writers like Ted Newsom and John um, Bancato, who later went to co-write the game, Barney Cohen, Sabrina, who did Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and uh, Frank uh, Gosha, lady who did Lady in White. With the budget shrinking at each pass, um, as the money available to finance the picture diminished, Zito left the project and the director's uh, with directors like Albert Pyun and Stephen Herrick in the mix at one point or another. By 1991, however, Canon was in a financial freefall. As per their deal with Marvel, the company lost the rights to Spider-Man since no film had ever been produced within five years of that option period. Golan then sold the rights to Carloco Pictures, which was about to explode of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Pardos entered James Cameron. Carloco immediately offered Spider-Man to Cameron, who was about to bounce back from 1989's financially disappointing The Abyss with the already buzzing and groundbreaking Terminator 2, which is probably the best sequel to anything of all time. Although Carloco received all the previous Spider-Man scripts that Canon had commissioned when it picked up the rights, Cameron reportedly didn't even look at one of them. He instead decided to start from scratch, and thank God he did. Or did he, though? <laughs> Confusingly, one of the last scripts of the canon era, uh, which was submitted to Columbia Pictures, back when the studio had a deal in place to distribute any canon-produced Spider-Man movie, named the authors James Cameron, James Bronco, Ted Newsom, Barry Cohen, Joseph Goldmari. The latter two were misspellings of Barry Gowen's names and Menaham Golan's own pseudonym, Jeff Goldblum. Still, there was Cameron's name right at the top. Unlike the first script by Leslie Stevens, succeeding versions had gone back and forth and uh, had had gone back to the comics, incorporating Dr. Octopus as the main villain and returning Peter Parker to a more traditional origin story. The script also had Doc Ock going insane and going on a complete rampage after his research is shut down by corporate investors. Oddly enough, not a million miles away from what eventually Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 would become. Other versions reportedly swapped Doc Ock for a Morbius-type vampire scientist or even the lizard. Um, it's not clear whether Cameron actually did work on this specific script, despite his name being on it, but what is known is that it became kind of legendary in its own way, and that he later wrote a nearly 60-page document labeled a scriptment, which laid out his own vision of Spider-Man. David Cope, who wrote the 2002 movie Spider-Man told IGN about Cameron's work, It took it took Peter... Quote, it took Peter more seriously as a character and it took a superhero movie seriously as a genre and you hadn't seen that before. Part three, Cameron's electrifying scriptment. According to David Hughes, the greatest sci-fi movies never made, no less than an authority than Stan Lee said that uh, that about Cameron's involvement with Spider-Man that quote, there is no doubt that Jim is the best man on earth to do a Spider-Man movie. He wants to do it and I want him to do it. Wow, what could have been, right? While Cameron indeed seemed to take Spider-Man seriously, he didn't feel the need to stay rigorously faithful to the comics in the story he concocted. Nonetheless, the 17-year-old Peter Parker and Cameron's scriptment is one we all know well. He's socially awkward yet intellectually gifted. He's bullied by high school jocks. He has an unrequited, He has an unrequited crush on popular classmate Mary Jane Watson. And he's an orphan living with his Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Although the spider that bites him is not radioactive and instead has genetically altered, has been genetically altered by its own ingestion of an experimentally recoded fruit fly, the effects on Peter are the same. He develops acute senses, super strength and agility, and finds he can climb walls. He has a strange dream of insects and other bizarre manifestations, awakening from them to find himself on top of a tower in nothing but his skivvies. And in a change that would have been as divisive in 1993 as it was when Sam Raimi borrowed the idea for 2002 Spider-Man movie that eventually did come out, Peter discovers that he can shoot organic webs from under his wrists, a pubescent metaphor even more direct in Cameron's vision than Raimi's, with Peter awakening (laughs) after a weird dream to find his body covered in a white fluid and the sheets sticking to his skin. (laughs) Ha ha, haven't we all been there? (laughs) Ha ha ha. Uh, Cameron told Screen Crush that he saw Peter Parker's transformation as a, quote, metaphor for puberty and all the changes to your body, which is why he changed the web shooters from tech that Peter invented to an organic mutation in Peter himself. Quote, going with the biological web shooters as being part of his biological adaptation to the radioactive spider bite made sense to me, according to Cameron. From there, the story goes through a number of familiar paces. Peter starts doing stunts in disguise on the streets of New York, gaining attention for himself in his Spider-Man persona, and even earning a little cash. But all that comes to an end when his uncle Ben is murdered, leading Peter to pivot to a life of fighting crime in his new with his newfound powers. That draws the attention of the police and local reporter in uh, the local TV reporter named J. Jonah Jameson, who turns the public against the mass vigilante, as well as a corrupt billionaire named Carlton Strand. Never heard of him? Well, here's a reason why. Strand, an original creation by Cameron, is the filmmaker's loose version of Electro, the character known as Max Dillon in the comics, who would later be played by Jamie Foxx in 2014's The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and 2021's Spider-Man No Way Home. Strand can control electricity after surviving a lightning strike, using his powers to build himself a criminal empire that he'd like to recruit Spider-Man for. His right-hand man is Boyd, who can shapeshift his body into any form by turning into sand. In other words, Cameron's take on another classic Spidey villain, the Sandman, whose name in the comics is Flint Marco, and he was played by Thomas Hayden Church in Spider-Man 3. The early 90s, pre-internet, was a time when filmmakers can make some fairly extensive changes to characters and their origins without incurring the wrath of online fandom. Canonically, altering the backstories of two of its best-known villains from Spider-Man's Rogue Gallery is perhaps the farthest that Cameron was willing to go. But his Peter Parker is also rougher around the edges than Stanley and Steve Ditko's introverted but well-meaning superhero. Um, By contrast, Cameron's interpretation briefly seems to take pleasure in hurting people. He also curses vigorously. And he and Mary Jane, who he, who falls in love with Spider-Man without knowing it's her s- school friend Peter behind the mask, even have sex atop the Brooklyn Bridge in one sequence while MJ keeps her eyes closed. Yeah, that could that could not fly today. <laughs> I don't even know how that could fly then, but I have a feeling it would. Um, in all ends, it all ends in a furious battle atop of the World Trade Center. Ooh, that would not have aged well. Um, <laughs> With Spider Man rescuing Mary Jane from Strand and revealing his true identity to her in the process. Stanley loved the scriptment. What quote, what Jim managed to do with Spider Man uh was exactly the way Spider Man should be, he told Premier magazine. The same personality, the same uh gestalt, and yet it all seems fresh and different, something we've never seen before. Cameron himself kept suggesting that Spider-Man would be his next film after wrapping up production of True Lies in 1993. Quote, I'm doing the origin story and then we're going way beyond and delving into the whole story of teenage angst, he told Platinum Magazine. What if you were 17 years old and you could do whatever the fuck you wanted, anytime you wanted? His choice to star in his deeply philosophical take on the character, Leonardo DiCaprio, who was already known in Hollywood for several excellent performances, but was still a few years away from reaching superstardom in Cameron's Titanic. Wait, Titanic? We thought Cameron was doing Spider-Man after finishing True Lies. Well, he was until the story got complicated. Next part, Oh, What a Tangled Web. Soon after Cameron was done of True Lies and presumably returned uh, to his full attention to Spider-Man, Carloco went bankrupt, the result of several massive box office failures like Cutthroat Island. Although 20th Century Fox had offered to buy the Spider-Man rights, Carloco held on to them for dear life, or at least until the company lost them anyway, when all of its assets were picked up by MGM in a fire sale. Well, not all assets. Carloco had the Spidey film rights, Sony had home video, and Viacom won the broadcast rights. After MGM picked up the film rights, both Sony and Viacom claimed to have, as a result of their contracts, the right to make a Spider-Man feature film. At the same time, a financially strapped Marvel Comics sued to get the rights back on the basis that Carloco had failed to make a film before its option expired. Even uh, Menahan Golan came out of the woodwork, suing everyone and claiming he still had a piece of the action. According to the Los Angeles Times, nearly four years of litigation over the rights of Spider-Man involved quote, four bankruptcy cases and five lawsuits, including 18 separate written agreements. Nearly every studio in Hollywood, along with the other entities, got involved in the legal wrangling. As the suit boiled down to a pissing match between MGM and Sony, even the James Bond franchise got caught in the middle since both studios were planning competing 007 films due to rights issues. Imagine that. One of the conditions of the eventual settlement, which awarded the Spider-Man film rights to Sony in 1999, and thank God it worked out that way, was that the later company give up any any effort to make a James Bond movie. When the smoke finally cleared and Sony emerged victorious with Spider-Man rights in hand, the path seemed finally clear to make the movie about the wall crawler. But by then, Cameron, who went home with an armful of Oscars for Titanic, including Best Picture and Best Director, had moved on. Even though Stan Lee and the then-Sony head John Calley still wanted Cameron behind the camera, the director was no longer interested in adapting somebody else's material. With the amount of time and energy I put into that film, Cameron told Premiere, it shouldn't be somebody else's superhero. Of course, Sony eventually recruited Sam Raimi to direct the first major Spider-Man adaption, um, and the screenplay for 2002 Spider-Man uh, by David Cope, re- with revisions by some others, did use elements from James Cameron's scriptment, including the organic web shooters. So James Cameron's Spider-Man does exist in some form in the real world, which is more Uh, than his quote Aquaman can say wild shit and I think it's I think it's even better that went to Raimi because Raimi was one of those young directors at the time he I don't think he had even done the evil dead yet who wanted to not only write a script but also direct he also tried to throw I think he tried to throw his hand in Batman after um, Batman Returns when they were, were getting rid of Tim Burton. This is one reason why um, he wanted to do a superhero movie so badly that he created the hero, the superhero Darkman. So, you know, eventually everything works out. And weren't we all happy to see Sam Raimi back uh, with Multiverse of Madness? Wild shit. Wild shit. Well, folks, that's a lot of shit for today. Thank you so much for bearing with me. And uh, we'll be back next week for another episode of the Second Print Comics Podcast. Please support the show by joining us for as little as a cost of coffee. Get exclusive stuff such as the Jenner Panel, uh, Mark's Case of the Runs, Rumso versus DCU, and so much more content. You can hear episodes like this early in advance and so much more. Patreon.com slash pod. And if you can't do that, please take a, f- a couple seconds. Next time you're taking a shit, uh, put down whatever you're scrolling on and go ahead and consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, whatever you're listening on spotify you know how internet works it was a but other people know why they should go ahead and give SBC a chance and as always if nothing more remember this tattoo it on your forehead name your first kid after this long sentence read comics and change the world